So Revelation chapter one, we've started going through the book of Revelation. Uh, it's an important book, extremely important. It's the concluding book of the Bible. And as uh, we work through it, there are certain principles of interpretation that are used. And sometimes in commentaries and studies, people will say, oh, you have to have a completely different system of interpretation. It's called a hermeneutic uh, for the book of Revelation. And my contention is, no, you don't. You treat it like the rest of Scripture. Take it literally. That is according to the words. And verse one tells us it's given uh, by signs. He sent and signified it by his angel. The word signified there. Uh, to his servant John, it signified comes from the Greek word, or is the, the original Greek word is semeo, and it means to show by signs. That's what that word means. So there's symbolism in this book. So to take it literally is to do justice to the symbolism that's in it. We have some that say, oh, well, you, know, you have to take it literally, or they say, we take it literally, but you reform people, you, uh, you don't, and as if we're somehow not being faithful to the word of God, and we listen to him talk, it's basically... Uh, they're taking it physically instead of uh, symbolically. And so there's a difference there. So the literal interpretation is primarily symbolic, although there are some great declarations and the thing signified, that is you have the sign and the thing behind it, they're pretty close. Sometimes you're just having a description of things. So I want to mention that before we go into this. We're going to today be looking at verses 9 through the end of chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, this is the concluding introduction of the actually the entire book and of this first chapter and so then we'll consider it and see what the lord can uh give us from this and take away from, for us to take away from so john uh the revelation of our lord jesus christ given by the apostle john chapter one beginning at verse nine we read john writes and says i john both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first 
and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. You've given us this book. It is a revelation, an opening of the truth, Lord, of history and of your plan and your purpose. And Lord, we pray you would open our hearts to your word now this day, Lord, and that you would open your word to our hearts and minds. Lord Jesus, you said, apart from you, we can do nothing. And we prove that all too often. We pray, Lord, that this day you would give us grace to recognize that we need your blessing and your Holy Spirit to open our understanding and our minds so that we might receive the truth of your word, that we would read it, understand it, believe it, receive it, and by your grace, obey it and have it become part of our lives. But Lord Jesus, you have to do this for us because our minds are prone to wander and we miss a lot of things, Lord. And so we just pray you'd bless us this day. Speak to us from your holy word, Lord. Help us to truly hear your voice and to recognize it for what it is, your voice, Lord. And so bless us, we pray. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable to you, Heavenly Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this day. For we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been working through chapter one. We've seen some wonderful things, I think, uh, thus far. I think everyone would agree what's in Scripture is, is absolutely awesome. Starts off just quickly to get to the point where we start today. It's called a revelation of Jesus Christ, as I just alluded to in my prayer. Revelation means an opening, a revealing, okay? Um, apocalypse. Apocalypsis is the Greek word for revelation, um, and it means just that, that which is open. Uh, God gave this to Christ. Remember when Jesus was here on earth, he said, no man knows the day or the hour, nor the angels in heaven, nor the sun. This book answers that because Christ is given, particularly in chapter 5, when he takes the scroll from him who sat upon the throne and begins to open it. He is given the knowledge and the revelation that God gave to him. Note that Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, who is true God and true man, he received from God this revelation to show to his servants. So again, it's not necessarily a message for the world. That's why the world stumbles at so much that's in this book. And when we think like the world, we begin to stumble. But he gave it to show to his servants. Remember the Greek word doulai is slaves, bond servants, uh, the things that must shortly take place. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything had to be fulfilled because this book goes all the way up to the second coming and eternity. Uh, but it means they're going to happen swiftly. That's what the word take means uh, that's translated swiftly in our Bibles. Uh, things which must take place shortly or swiftly, they're going to happen. When they begin happening, they're going to move. And that's exactly what occurred. Uh, and he sent and signified it, that showed by signs, by his angel or his messenger to his servant, John. John names himself in this book of the uh, other books that are written. There's five books in the New Testament that are attributed to John, although uh, some like to say, well, it's not John the Apostle. It might be another John. 
And that's an argument that goes back in history somewhat, but it's pretty clear this is John. And But some say, well, why does he name himself here and not in his other writings in the gospel or epistle? This is a prophecy. Prophets name themselves. If you remember the Mosaic requirement that everything that a prophet speaks has to be proven true, that is, it was to occur within uh, that generation, the future things you'd have to trust God for. But a prophet needed to have his words confirmed and identif identify himself. So John does just that. Uh, and he bore witness to the word of God. So he's talking about who he is and what he did. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. He did that in his gospel, by the way, very clearly. Uh, and then to all that he saw. And so he's talking here about this book he's going to tell us, but I believe this covers his other writings as well. John is a witness. He talks about what he's seen here in his gospel. He has the same approach. He writes what he saw. He was there. He uh, talks about when John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John began to follow Jesus then. Later, after he and his brother had gone back up to Galilee to work in their fishing business, Jesus came walking by one day, not too long after that, and he said to John and to his brother James, follow me. Well, they already had spent a day with him and some time with him before that, so they began to follow him. And so John does write in his writings what he'd witnessed and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why I love the Gospel of John. All of Scripture is beautiful. God, John's gospel is exceptionally lovely for us because the gold is right on the surface, so we can scoop it up and take it with us. Uh, John heard Jesus say the words that he records in his gospel. He saw Christ crucified. He was there. If you remember, Jesus committed uh, his mother, Jesus's mother, Mary, to John's care. And when he said, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And John says he took her into his house from that time on. So John was there. He saw Jesus when he had died. He tells us in his gospel, he saw when the spear was thrust into the side of Jesus to make sure he was dead. He was there. He knew the events. He was there uh, with the other apostles during that, that dark Sabbath day when Jesus was in the tomb from that what we call Good Friday up until uh, resurrection morning. He was there. And then when Mary and the others came, or actually Mary came to him and Peter first and said, the Lord is risen. So they ran to see. And when they got there, they just saw the, oh, actually, she told them the tomb, had, the, the body was not in the tomb. And that's when they ran to see after they left, Mary stayed. And that's when Jesus appeared to her. You need to get the chronology correct. My point is, John saw the empty tomb. And he says when he went into it, after Peter got there and went in first, John got John outran him, and when he got there, he said when he went in, he believed. But then he says immediately after, but he didn't yet understand the scripture. So there was something wonderful going on in John. Later that evening, Jesus appears to them, and as you know, that you know his appearance, he told them peace because they freaked out because they thought it was a ghost or something. And he said, "Handle me and see." He said, "A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I do." And he ate with them. Christ physically rose from the dead. John saw that. So he bore witness of the word of God and to the testimony of, uh, of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. And then he tells us in regard to this book about the blessing. Blessed is he who reads. Remember the Greek word is, well, maybe you don't remember the Greek word, but it's anagonosko. Okay. Gnosko means to know. Ana means to lift up. Somehow in the Greek uh, speech, 
That meant to read out loud because you lift it off the page and there it is, all right? So blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. It's not just reading and hearing. There's one other thing added. And keep those things which are written, meaning to hold on to them and obey them and believe them and keep those things. So reading, hearing, and keeping those things, and the keeping covers both the reader and the hearers, uh, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's getting ready to happen. So then he addresses the, the, those to whom this is given. Uh, we know from uh, the verses following, in verse 11 primarily, who he was to write to. So here he does. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. He names them off in verse 11, but right now he's just greeting them. And by Asia, it means Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey or western Turkey on the coast. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. We looked at that and saw, you know, when God says to Moses, I am that I am. I will be that which I will be. God is who he is. The way you know him is how he reveals himself. And how he reveals himself is exactly how he is. There was an early heresy in the early church called Sabellianism. And they were the... the early church version of the Jesus only movement. And they said, oh, well, Jesus is the father. Jesus is the son. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. And many others said, no, that's not what the apostles taught us. That's not what the scripture says. Well, then Sibelius came up and he said, well, you know, God manifested himself as the father in the Old Testament. When Jesus was here physically, he manifested himself as the Son, and now he manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. But you see, God isn't really Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's just how he manifested himself historically. Well, the early church fathers dealt with this because they recognized it to be a really bad heresy. And they said, God is no different than the way he has revealed himself. In the Old Testament, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are quite often Reference together, you know, Proverbs, uh, when the question is asked, you know, uh, what is his name and what is his son's name? Talking about God, if you know, Psalm 2, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Uh, Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. And in the New Testament, things like at the baptism of Jesus, the son is baptized, the Heavens open up, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove upon him, visibly, as a manifestation there. And a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the main thing, so very clearly, there's three persons in the Godhead. But the main thing in the, the church fathers where they rejected Sibelianism was just what I said a moment ago. God is no different than how he has revealed himself. If he's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's who he is. That's what he is. If he's one God in Trinity, then that's who he is. He doesn't reveal himself one way, but you have to have some super knowledgeable you know, person uh, come along and say, well, that's how he revealed himself. He's not really that way. Let me explain to you how he really is. And the early church just said, no, God has revealed himself. That's how he is. He who was and who is and who is to come. He's unchangeable. And so John greets the churches in the name of God, the eternal God. And he says, from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and clearly because grace and peace is being 
wished upon them, you might say, or blessed. They're being you know, blessed with that apostolic uh, blessing. And the name of the spirit is used here. And some say, well, there's seven spirits. As one man said, if the one God can be three, then the one spirit can have seven, not manifestations, but operations. And we look elsewhere where John or Paul rather deals with this and names the gifts of the spirit and his various ministries and functions. And he says, but there's only one spirit. We have seven churches being addressed, and each one, we're told, not hear what the spirits say. We're told, let he that has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. It's clearly one spirit. But he, he works individually and distributively in each congregation and in each Christian. And so that's how he's portrayed here, and God was pleased to reveal himself that way. For each one of us, you know, it is a very personal thing. For each congregation, it's very personal also. So he extends that greeting. And then he says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, you can trust his word, the firstborn from the dead. That doesn't mean that, uh, well, firstborn, I mean, because later we'll see that term comes up as the first firstborn of the creation or the first or the beginning of the creation. Firstborn is the place of privilege and inheritance. Christ is firstborn from the dead. He's the first one raised from the dead, never to die again. And he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Then John says, to him who loved us. Now he changes from wishing blessing upon the readers and hearers and the keepers. And when he mentions Jesus, he does exactly what Paul often does. He mentions Jesus and then he just breaks out and prays. Okay, not a bad habit to get into. Uh, he says, and from Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Like, again, just like Paul does in the other Paul, he mentions Jesus, he just breaks out into praise. I hope you get into that habit. It's a good one to get into. I'd like to get into it even more. But here, note what he says. We saw this. We've reviewed this. He loved us past tense, but it's not past tense as over and done with. It just means we set his love upon us. Uh, and he washed us from our sins in his own blood. How wonderful it feels to be clean. That's what Jesus does for us, a new life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's nice to get the filth of sin out of your life. How's that happen? Going to Jesus. He's the one, and he has done it. And this is what, notice, John is using past tenses here. He loved us and washed us from our sins. We experience the application of that in time. That's what our lives should be and hopefully are. To love us and wash us from our sins in his own blood. Now, he's not talking about physically being washed in the blood of Christ. Right? He's talking about that what Jesus accomplished at Calvary separates us from our sins, both as to their guilt and as to their pollution. And so Christ takes away our sins. We're forgiven and we're being cleansed. We're being changed. What a wonderful thing. And he's made us kings and priests. Remember, I mentioned that it, during, I believe this was written about 96 AD. I don't hold to the early date idea. But uh, and there's reasons for that that I'll get into later as we go through the book. But my point of mentioning that is that being written during the Domitian persecution, I believe. And if you want to say, well, it was earlier. Well, it was still written during a time of persecution, whether Nero or Domitian. He's writing to a group of people that are beat down, being hunted, being put to death when they're captured, and being treated like the most vile criminals on the face of the earth. 
He's writing to congregations that often had a large percentage of slaves in them, people who had no citizenship and no rights to speak of. They'd either get time off from their master, sometimes they'd sneak away and attend worship service. You had free men also, and they were wealthy people. The whole gamut was there. Uh, he's writing to people, though, that were under persecution. They were beaten down, and he tells them who they really are. You're kings and priests to God. How so? Well, the one who is the ruler over the kings of the earth, he's the one that's done it. It's not Caesar. It's Jesus. Jesus is Lord, and that's what he's telling them. And so this is a, a call to lift up your head, to recognize who you are. You're a child of God. That's what John said in his first epistle. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doesn't yet appear <coughs> what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Excuse me. <coughs> so John said, right now we are God's children. But, you know, that's not a glory that's manifested visibly here. Um, but we are God's children. We're kings and priests unto God. As kings, we subdue ourselves by God's grace. And we take dominion as kings under Christ. By that, it doesn't mean we get swords and go out and conquer the government or something like that. What it means is through prayer and good works and speaking the truth, we see our culture and the world transformed. You know, when the Bible says there's coming a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That's a lot of coverage, all right? Um, that's going to happen. How's that happen? through the preaching of the gospel, through the building up of the church. There is no plan B. And that's why we take uh, umbrage with our dispensationalist brethren who say, well, the church is going to get raptured. Then you have the seven-year period, then all those others. And it's going to be a different gospel that's preached because it's only going to go to the Jews and blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, when I read my Bible, there's one great commission, go and disciple the nations. And so we say, well, yeah, but that's not going to really happen. So really? Because the last part of that is Jesus saying, behold, I am with you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You can tell me he's with us and told us that something's going to happen and told us to do something. It's not going to happen. I don't believe that. The nations are going to be discipled. It's, been, it's going on right now. We're part of that. <laughs> um, we generally, all of us that are here come from pretty much pagan stock, Okay. All right, you go back, you know, we're not real proud of it. You go back a few centuries and you can find your Viking ancestors or your Native Americans or whatever your background is, probably committing human sacrifices and some real atrocious things, okay? Why are we here today? Well, because Jesus intervened. He told the apostles, disciple the nations. They told their disciples, the churches have been built up and people have been discipling others, etc., our pagan ancestors heard the gospel, okay? Those trees that were dedicated to Odin, somebody took an ax and cut them down, said, if Odin's God, let's see what he does. People are, well, let's see, and nothing happened. And, hmm. So he said, you need to listen to what I'm going to tell you. The real king of kings and lord of lords is Jesus Christ. And our pagan ancestors believed, and they repented. And as they were taught, <laughs> Whatever their relationship was with the word of God, that measures also the success they made in their lives. So whether it's Anglo-Saxon, French, you know, African, Asian, whatever it is, as the word of God enters into the nations, things change. Why? Because he's made us kings and priests to his God. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he 
switches here and he's he thinks of Jesus this eternal glory then he says behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him note that every eye that's why I believe this is re reference to the second coming at the end of history every eye will see him even they who pierced him because they're going to be there okay hopefully the Roman soldiers that Jesus prayed for and said father forgive them for they know not what they do there's good reason to believe those men's hearts were changed that day because they confessed Jesus as the Son of God and as a righteous man. But others who were behind his death, that is the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're going to be there also on Judgment Day. And he says, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. John recognizes Christ is coming again. The blessed hope of the church is the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Christ speaks and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. That can be understood of the triune God or simply of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we'll see in a moment he uses similar terms. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So this beat-down group of people called the church, they get this message from the Apostle John. And he's telling them, we have the victory. They go, yeah, where is John? By the way, oh, he's in prison on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, there were coal mines there. He was pretty old, so whether he was having to work in the coal mines or not, I don't know. Uh, tradition tells us he was there about 18 months. Uh, but they get this letter from John, because each church had its angel or messenger that had come to him, and so he sent him back. Um, wait a minute, John is in prison right now, maybe going to get killed. They didn't know he was going to outlive anything. By the way, John is the only apostle we know for sure uh, died a natural death, at least as far as history is concerned. And Jesus even referenced that if you read the last chapter of the Gospel of John. But there he is, he's in prison and he's saying we're kings and priests. Yeah, because God said it. You don't define your reality by certain your circumstances. You define it by what God has said. God said, you're kings and priests. John knew that. He recognized it. He knew who he was. He was a child of God. Christ was the victor. Everything in the book of Revelation and everything in history is based upon the victory of Christ. You want to know what's going to happen tomorrow? I can't tell you for sure. I'll give you a few hints. The mail won't be running, I was told, because it's Martin Luther King Day. So that's maybe, you know, I saw a post truck just out today, and I thought, that's sad to see, working on the Sabbath. Won't get into all that right now. But here's the deal. Christ is in control of history because he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega. He's the one that received the scroll of the future or destiny from the hand of him who sits upon the throne. Jesus is the one that breaks the seals. He unfolds history according to God's plan. And there is no plan B. It has to do with the gospel. The gospel is plan A and all the way from Oh, we'll use Greek, all the way from Alpha to Omega. It's about Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners and risen again. He is the Almighty. So now, verse 9, okay? We spent a lot of time on this, but we're going to leave chapter 1 here. So I want to say farewell to all those beautiful verses we've been looking at. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus. Three things mentioned there. Now the dispensation will say, ah, see, the tribulation, Okay. Uh, later, it refers to the tribulation, and they go, oh, that's the great tribulation. No, no, not really. We'll look at that when we get to it. But John says he was their fellow companion in the tribulation. The definite article is in the original, and also in the kingdom, all right, 
in the original. And patience, actually, it's the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So we won't get into the grammar that much, but look at your Bible. It's, it's giving you the faithful uh, rendition of it uh, with English grammar. But he says, I'm your brother and fellow companion. John doesn't put himself above those suffering Christians that he's writing to. And he lets them know, he said, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So someone said, well, it seems he wrote this after he got back to Ephesus or back to wherever he was. And history tells us he was at Ephesus. Uh, so he's letting them know, I was there. He's telling them what happened. I was on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Some said, what does that mean? Well, that means he was worshiping God. He was praying. Being in the spirit means he was focused on the things of God. And the Holy Spirit was active in him. And on the Lord's day, someone said, well, is that Saturday or Sunday? And it's like, it's more than likely Sunday, because that's the day that Christ sanctified by rising from the dead, by appearing to the disciples, by sending the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which was a Sunday, uh, and uh, by gathering the saints together on the Lord's day, etc., etc. So he was there on the Lord's day. I believe that pretty clearly from Scripture that it's a Sunday. So he's, he's worshiping God on Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. That will get your attention. Okay. I don't know if you've ever had a, somebody sound a trumpet behind you. It's a lot better than them do it in your ear because uh, if they do that, you're going to probably you know need hearing aids or something pretty soon. But he hears a sound, and it's like a trumpet saying, and here's what it was. In other words, you, you're not going to ignore this. He hears this voice speaking, and it's not rude. And by the way, the voice of Christ sounded like a trumpet. You can be sure it was beautiful, okay? He hears this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book or a scroll, Greek word biblion can mean either, uh, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And here he names them, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And those are seven churches. There's a road that follows it. It's on the west coast of Turkey today, Turkey, Asia at the time. Uh, so he says, write to these churches, send us to these churches. So he did what any of us would do. He says, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. So he's in, he's praying, and he's having this vision, kind of like when Peter was praying on the rooftop, and he saw the, the sheet let down with all the animals. So he, he, he's in the spirit. He says, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, John had grown up in and around Jerusalem. Uh, his family, they were friends of the high priest. So he'd been in the temple precincts. He understood what lampstands were in the temple, those golden lampstands that were there. But he turns around and he sees seven of them. He sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. It's not saying it wasn't the one we know as the Son of Man, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. But he, recognized, he says he's like it, but he looks really different. He's like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the feet, beautifully dressed, and girded about the chest with the golden bands. So he's dressed like a, like a, kind of like the priest were, but a little different. This is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, you know. And he says, as he looks at him, his head and hair were white like wool. Well, the Old Testament tells us the gray hair is, head is a sign of wisdom, and so obviously Christ is portrayed as such. But it looks like his hair was white, glistening as uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember when his glory was manifested, 
John there wrote and said it, uh, it was he appeared it was wider than any fuller could make fuller meaning a bleacher someone who did bleaching could ever make any cloth it was glorious and that's what he sees here in Christ uh, his garment is goes down to the, the to the his feet he's got the golden band around his uh, chest his head and hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire. This is what John sees. You can imagine this, this had an effect on. We're going to see what the effect was in just a moment. And his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Now, in Daniel chapter ten, Daniel describes, I believe, pretty clearly there, uh, almost a parallel to this. In Daniel chapter ten, this one appears, and he has feet like brass, uh, and meaning they're kind of golden in appearance. But here John describes him as fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. There was something about this, the, the fine brass, kakolibanon uh, is the Greek word for fine brass there, and burnished bronze or burnished brass, uh, as if refined in a furnace. I meaning, first of all, very pure, very beautiful, but there's a, the idea this is one who perhaps has walked through fire. If you remember Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they got Nebuchadnezzar mad at them because they stood up to his paganism. So he threw them in, bound into the furnace. And what did he see? He looks in and he says, I three, see three of them walking around. It was a big furnace. It was so hot, the guys that went up to throw them in were killed by the flame. But those three fell in, and all the fire did was burn off their ropes that were tying them up. He sees them walking, and then he says, and I see a, another one walking with him that looks like the Son of God. By the way, a lot of modern versions totally corrupt that and do not really follow in the Hebrew either. I, uh, they say one like the Son of the Gods. Okay, well, Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan, but if you translate the Hebrew correctly, I believe, Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar knew this one that they've been talking about, I think, just showed up. That's their God that they would not abandon to worship my idols. And so a lot happened, but he walked with them in the midst of the furnace. Now, if you're a first century Christian or a Christian living in the world today undergoing severe persecution and you feel like Israel and Egypt, and, you know, God refers to that as he brought them out of the furnace, out of the furnace, that is, a, it was a place of extreme abuse and torture, but he was with them. Remember Moses' first vision of God, or first appearance of the angel of the Lord, who was the Lord Jesus, I believe, um, the messenger of Yahweh, was in a flaming bush when <laughs> we saw him. Christ is the one that walked through the fire. So if you're in the midst of persecution, this one that John saw, his feet were like fine brass, uh, refined in a furnace, okay? So he, not averse or estranged from walking in the in the fire with his people and delivering them out of it like he did Daniel's three friends. And his voice as the sound of many waters, again, he references that. Have you ever been by a waterfall and just heard the, the roaring thunder? I, I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. We had the privilege of being there. Uh, and Niagara Falls is... Um, loud, okay, many waters, it makes a lot of noise, So it, but yet it's cl clear when Christ speaks. It's like the sound of many waters and yet crystal clear. So he had in his right hand, again, he, he said seven stars. 
So it was right in there, seven stars. This is what John's seeing. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Well, we know from Hebrews chapter 4, that's talking about the word of God. The word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword dividing between the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Christ has flames like fire. That is, he burns through all of our hypocrisy and our fakeness when we're trying to cover our sin. And he has a sharp two-edged sword to separate us from our sins or to deal with those who are unrepentant. And so he has this, where does it comes out of his mouth? That is when Christ speaks, this is a symbol here. When Christ speaks, it is the sword of the spirit. And his countenance, that is his appearance, was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, you shouldn't look directly at the sun, by the way, if you're young and don't know this. The sun, it can damage your retina, the back part of your eye. And people who have looked at the sun for too long or stared at it, thinking it was safe to do, have damaged their eyes permanently so you don't stare at the sun. But John is saying, you know, every one of us has kind of looked at the sun and they, oh, you have to look away because it's so bright and kind of painful. John is seeing this with his eyes wide open. And he says his appearance was, how's he say? It was like the sun shining in its strength. This is the manifestation of the glory of Christ. So John has the same reaction I think any of us would have. This is when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now John isn't saying he died. He's saying as dead. He just, when he saw this, it was like, oh, thud. Down he went, okay? Um, so John is overwhelmed by this vision of the resurrected, victorious, glorified Christ. He's letting us know what he saw. And it's okay to have a little bit of a sanctified imagination. You know, you don't you don't want to violate the second commandment and try to have images in your head of what Jesus looked like. But you're given here a, a visual, verbal description of Christ. And it's not wrong to let your mind think about that. What did John see? Well, he saw Christ in his victory. He saw Christ in his glory. He saw Christ in his power. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He falls at his feet as dead. But you know who he saw? He saw Jesus. How do we know that? Read the next words. And he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. Wow. The one who is the glorified, exalted son of God, king of the nations, ruler over all things, absolutely sovereign, the son of God, or God the son. He sees John faint. John thud just falls over. Daniel did the same thing with his vision of Christ. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is so good because, you know, one of these days you're going to appear before Jesus when he comes back in glory. And if you're a believer, you might think, I think probably I'm going to fall over as a dead man. I won't be able to handle it. Well, by yourself, you won't. But here's what happened with John. He laid his right hand on me. I love this saying to me, do not be afraid. When Jesus says this, it happens. He told the waters on the, the uh, sea, to, sea of Galilee, peace be still. And what happened? Quieted down. Told Lazarus, who was dead, Lazarus, come forth. What happened? Lazarus came forth. When Christ speaks, it takes place. The little girl, Talitha, told her, he said, um, meaning little lamb, Talitha Kumi, little, little maid or young maid or little lamb, arise. What happened? Boom, it happened. 
when Jesus says, don't be afraid, what do you think happened in John's heart? Wow. You realize the reason why, you know, God doesn't work in a vacuum here either. John realized who it was because he'd seen Jesus do the same thing with others. He'd heard those words before on the Sea of Galilee when they saw in the middle of the night toward you know, toward the end, but it was late, late, dark night. They see somebody walking on the water, and they think, thinking, what on earth is going on? They're thinking it's some goblin or ghost or something coming to get us. And then they hear the one that's walking toward them say, don't be afraid. It's, it's I. It's me. And the, it's be Peter even said, let me, can, I, let me, can I walk on the water? And he, he almost did, huh, until he looked around, saw his circumstances. Uh, Christ grabbed him and got him back to the boat. But time and again, they heard Jesus. When he, when he appeared to them and they freaked out at the resurrection, he said, fear not. Same exact words. Don't be afraid. When Jesus says it, it happens, right? And he says it to us here. He's speaking to John. And he says, don't be afraid. And then he tells him why he doesn't need to be afraid. He says, I am the first and the last. Don't worry about whatever's going to happen. I'm the one. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives. He says, I'm alive. I was dead. Jesus died. He said, I don't, and he said, no. He said, behold, look, I'm alive forevermore. Well, he died. He died for us. John knew that. He died for John's sins. So John knew it. When Jesus says, I... I am alive. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I'm risen never to die again. Amen. True. And I have the keys of Hades or hell and of death. So Jesus lets him know, you don't have to be afraid of anything. I have the keys of hell and of death. Don't be afraid. I think John was calmed. Okay. He was still in amazement. Who wouldn't be? But when Jesus speaks, it happens. And then he gives them, again, renews the commission, you might say. Write the things which you have seen. Okay, thus far you've seen some stuff. Write it down. And the things which are, many believe, well, that's going to be him writing to the seven churches, which were in existence at that time. And the things which will take place after this. And that's where I believe, you know, when you get to chapter 5, you begin to see history unfold. I personally believe that, the book of Revelation basically tells us what's going to happen from the time of John receiving this until Christ returns in glory and eternity begins. So that's what he tells in this threefold, right? What you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So John gets his commission. And then the last verse tells us, Christ explains to him, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. Now, mystery means something you can't know unless you're told. It has to be explained to you. Mystery in Scripture is not something that is unknowable. It's something that's unknowable unless God tells you what it is. All right? Uh, and here he is. He's telling him that. You know, John speaks, or Paul rather, speaks of the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16, which is that God was manifested in the flesh. Uh, here he says, you want to know what the mystery is? The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And some say, well, they, does each church have an angel that cares for it? Well, we know that Jesus talked about guardian angels watching over children. So it's very possible. And Paul talks about the angels being present in Christian worship. Uh, and that's why we're to conduct ourselves accordingly and recognize that the angels themselves are curious as to what's going on, okay? And they look out for us. So some believe that's what this could be a reference to. Others believe it's just the simple word angeloi, meaning 
or angelos meaning messenger, uh, that, that, that from the churches, the messengers has come. Some have said it was the, the pastors of the churches, etc. I'll, I'll go ahead and venture out and say it was the angels of the churches. Okay, and you can figure out which definition you want to attach to that. But he says this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. They're the ones that shine. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, they give light. That's what a lampstand does. That's the seven churches. Again, so we have this, this victory of Christ portrayed symbolically before us. And Christ commissions John right to the churches. Tell them what's going on. Tell them what you've seen. Tell them what this present standing is and tell them what's going to happen. So the commission is reconfirmed with the symbolism of the seven stars and the lampstand. So this vision, chapter one, concludes the opening introduction to the entire book of Revelation and clearly declares that the past, present, and future are to be viewed and understood in the light of Christ's victory, glorification, and absolute sovereignty. There will be no contingencies in the unfolding of God's plan. John is told in this book what's going to happen, not what might happen, what's going to happen. God is in control of history. That's so important because we live in a really messed up time, okay? Babies are being murdered by the millions. We see wickedness and immorality being paraded. And if you speak up against it, you're a bad person, you know, because you got some kind of phobia or something that they would say. We live in a twisted, darkened world. Well, the churches are not shining the light like they ought to. We're going to address that in the next few weeks as we actually, Lord willing, the next seven weeks as we look at the seven churches. Um, but all of this that's going on, we need to look at our culture and we need to understand it in the light of Christ's victory, glorification, and sovereignty. Jesus is Lord. There will be no contingencies, as I said, in the unfolding of God's plan. This is because and becomes abundantly clear really in this book from chapter 5 onward, when the victorious Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, opens before the throne of God, and he appears there, the scroll that was given to him. And he appears there as the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, but risen again. And he receives that scroll and then begins to open its seals and reveal what the future is. But before chapter 5, judgment must begin at the house of God. So the churches are addressed. And that's what we're going to find in chapters two and three in the weeks ahead. You're free to read those chapters now, you know, uh, but recognize this. Everything that's happening in history, everything is happening in the light of Christ's victory. And that's what we need to keep before us as we conduct ourselves and as we make our plans. Well, Lord, what would you have me to do? How should I live my life? Well, I should live my life in light of the victory of Christ. And act accordingly and do all that I can do in my vocation and in loving my family and speaking to others and helping others. Should all that I can with the fear of God before me and recognize Jesus is Lord. And I want to bear witness to that. I want that to be seen, not just with my words, but the way I live and think and talk. May God bring that about. It's a wonderful book, and I hope you know you'll read it and be blessed by it. There's a promise from God if you do. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to apply your word to our hearts and minds. Help us to remember what you have declared in Scripture and write it in our hearts and minds. Lord, we pray so that we'd remember it and we'd love your word and that we would believe it and obey it. 
This we ask, Father, with all your blessings upon us and the forgiveness of our sins. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, your victorious Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. 